Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode of the AccuWeather Podcast. I'm your host, Regina Miller. I'm joined in the studio by Andy Robb. Hi, Andy. Hi, Regina. How are you? Good, good. You know, we have a really... uh, impactful show for today, but I want to play you a clip. This is from the AccuWeather Network last year of Hurricane Maria. And you can just hear those winds whipping in Puerto Rico, and you can actually see those trees going along with it. I know San Juan had a wind gust of 113 miles per hour just the other day. Yeah, and that was uh, before the worst of Maria arrived. I bet you they had wind gusts up over 125, 130, but at 113, the sensors went out Mm -hmm. along with the radar. But boy, just gives you the sense of the fury of Maria as she moved across Puerto Rico. Thanks for joining us here at the AccuWeather Network. We still have Jose. Right, so uh, Andy, I mean, devastating winds. And so we cover that on the AccuWeather Network and here at AccuWeather, we cover those storms. But we today are talking to someone who actually lived through it, survived it, She's from Puerto Rico, and she's one of our Spanish broadcasters. Yeah, we'll be joined by Carusca Matos Horta telling us about her experience uh, with Hurricane Maria. Because, of course, the uh, the news came out just a week or so ago that the uh, estimated death toll a lot higher than uh, previously estimated uh, with Hurricane Maria. Right, up to 70 times higher. So, uh, you know, absolutely devastating. She's going to tell us the story of living through it and then life in Puerto Rico afterwards. We're also going to be talking to uh, FEMA, Justo Hernandez. Uh, he's the deputy federal coordination officer in Puerto Rico because we want to find out where things are now uh, as we're heading in where we actually started another hurricane season. And our last topic for today is with our own Jeff Cornish. That's right. Our meteorologist from the AccuWeather Network, Jeff Cornish, has been uh, live out on location for the last few days out in New Mexico uh, covering the Ute wildfires. Right. And uh, Jeff is a meteorologist, but he's also a Uh, firefighter. Yeah. yeah, So so. we've got him on the ground and he's been there this week. So we have all that coming up. Stay tuned. From our global headquarters in State College, Pennsylvania, it's the AccuWeather Podcast. Here's your host, Regina Miller. Hurricane season just started on June 1st, and a new study released from the New England Journal of Medicine shows the death toll from Hurricane Maria last season may have been 70 times greater than the official death toll after the Category 4 storm hit the island in September of 2017. That original number was 64 it's now believed to be well over 4,000. Initial deaths were from wind and flooding, but then secondary deaths are attributed to the lack of electricity, access to medicine, and medical services in unsanitary conditions. So today, I am joined in the studio by Caruska Matos Horta, and she is one of our Spanish broadcasters here at AccuWeather. And Caruska, thank you for sitting down and talking to me about this. You came here in January, 
And we had talked about this as soon as you first arrived, didn't we? Yes, we have been talking about how hard has been the situation still been. Like every week I come with a new story of what's happening in the island because it's a non-stop situation where it's all about desperation. And, right. Yeah. Well, so when you heard the new numbers uh, from that study, did that surprise you at all? No, actually, no. I'm actually surprised that they didn't, like, think about that. And it's actually surprising to me that people get surprised. Because how can you not believe that number when there was no hospitals running during or and after Hurricane Maria? So there was a lot of babies that didn't get out of the hospital because they didn't have the proper attention, the medical attention. Um, all the people that got sick during that time, the people that got hit by stuff during that time that go to the hospital and the people that just got sick because of this um bacteria going on the waters were contaminated so there was no medical attention and well it, yeah it's just so crazy i know well and that's what um that's what amazed me well i guess i wasn't amazed that there could be ongoing sickness other issues but when i sat down and talked to you that's why i said uh Karuska has to sit in on this podcast and we were talking about this a long time ago before these numbers came out this is when you came here in january and so um i want you to tell your story let you know so let's start with before the hurricane came tell me what life was like for you before it came it was completely normal. I just wake up like every adult, go to do my adulting in my work <laughs> to get through the day and then come back, go to the gym to just tell healthy. And before Hurricane Maria was all good, um, we did have some impacts from Hurricane Irma, but it was not major. Like a few people in comparison with the people now um, got out of power, but... For pretty much the whole islands, it was normal. It was just like a normal power outage. So it was nothing major, like you can compare it to it. And that was a little thing, like Hurricane Irma didn't impact us, but then people were like, oh, Hurricane Maria is gonna be the same. So then when it meets the lack of education, like, oh yeah, because one hurricane didn't hit us, this one is gonna be the same. And that was the problem comes and people did not prepare, right? Because of that. Mostly. Right. And I was going to ask you that, like, so right beforehand, how were you staying informed? What did people know about it right beforehand? So we have our local meteorologists in the local TV news, and we just were aware of that social media. But again, was we had the the di not direct impact of Hurricane Irma, so people were just comparing. It's gonna be the same. It's not gonna be anything major until like two days when the meteorologists were getting more serious. Like this is coming. Go and get your shelter and your and prepare and then people were like okay they're like no joking right now and people just went crazy because they were so not mentally prepared you have your whole family and you don't know what's gonna happen so do you think so so what it was is you kind of got lulled in to a false sense of security after Irma wasn't that big a deal and then panic ensued right before Hurricane Maria arrived. exactly Right. Now tell me about during the storm. Tell me about you and your family. What was happening for you guys as the storm came in? Well, as the hurricane was passing, we just didn't even like uh, 
pay attention to who can outside because we were getting water inside our house. So my mom got all these mops to get water out and towels because it was getting water. And telling oh, you mean water like coming in, in under house, your yes, uh, under like the doors, doors even though everything was locked. The winds were so powerful that even having all the preparedness in the house there was still water coming on our house so we were like just with all the, the towels and all the mops and all the family like going where's the pets the pets are okay do not eat the after hurricane snacks so it was, oh right because you're, you're get, trying to save things because yes. you know you might and you have, get so stressed eating because this is stressing just hearing the winds and it was ongoing ongoing the rain it, it, could, it wasn't stopping and then we completely lost our service and some of our cell phones. So we were left like with nothing, just a radio and just listening to what's going on. And me as a as a meteorologist, I want to see the radars and want want to see where the eye is going. And I couldn't do that because I didn't have the the power in my house because the power ran off like Hurricane Maria wasn't even inside the island when the power went off. So we were had no idea, just the radio, like, oh, it's it's not, it, this is nothing. This is just like a few rain and we're out without power. So. Right. And so you uh, that had to be so frustrating as a meteorologist, knowing the storm is onshore. You can't even access any of the information because the cell towers, all the power, all that kind of stuff is down. So um, how long, like, how long were you hunkered down in your house just waiting for the storm to go over and what was it like immediately after you came out definitely like 12 hours like just sitting there like like with the water and hearing the winds and after like when you know the radio told us like it's safe like it's already then you go out you meet all your neighbors we are all in shock but that moment now that i look back we had no idea that our nightmare was about to start right because that was just the beginning and that's when all this started to happen so talk to me a little bit about the weeks following the hurricane because you where did you say your a town is located? My town is in Tuabaja, which is like 15 minutes away from San Juan. We're in the north coast. Um, so after the hurricane, when, like, the people who kept their job, the few people like me that I, I was working in a science museum, um, I had to go to my work. And I work in San Juan. And between my work and my house without traffic is 15 minutes. It was starting to get me two hours. There was no traffic lights. There was no people to give transit. Um, so it was just a nightmare because everyone wanted to go and get food and get gas. And it was like a family division of people go to work then my my dad went to get gas he was like eight hours like waiting for gas and then we had a little stuff of food so we wanted to get ice um he used to wake up at 3 a.m and the ice oh place, to ice down like whatever perishable food you had to buy ice yeah yes. mm -hmm, because we wanted to get our little sandwiches to, right you know so we had some cheese and some milk just to get some food and he had to wake up at 3 a.m. and the ice place opened at 10 a.m. So we were all the family standing up about all that time just to get our eyes. It was just desperation and there was no hope. It's just a hopeless situation. All your plans were like gone. Even I was about to graduate on the fall and I haven't still graduated because of that. Right, because everything, yeah. life as the island knew it 
really stopped in a lot of locations as Maria hit. Just a reminder, we are speaking to Carusca Matos Horta from Puerto Rico, and she is now a Spanish broadcaster here at the AccuWeather Network. Now, how long did it take for you to recognize the ongoing problems that existed even outside of, like, because you said you were closer to San Juan, so you got help a little bit earlier on. What did you start hearing about the rest of the island? So I work in a science museum, so we had this program where we were going places along the island to bring like fun science stuff to kids and families like how to do a water filtering at home and those kind of stuff so I got to go like two weeks after that was our the immediate response from the science museum um so we went to the whole places in the island so I got to see every place coast to coast how were the situations going on and it was just terrible I thought that it was bad that, you know, having no water, no food, it was bad. But people has lost their roof. Kids were, like, they didn't know what was going on. And they were just waiting there for everything to get better. But their pants were desperate. So they were got stressed, too. And just seeing kids, like, that was the most shocking for me. Like, they have even lost all the toys. And they cannot understand. And they, for us, we understand that's replaceable, but for them, that's the only thing they, they recognize as theirs. So mm. it's like the only property. For us, it's our house. For them, it's their toys. So right. that's how they feel. And, you know, all the schools were uh, were refugees back there, so they couldn't even go to school. The education was strongly affecting them this because all so the schools. So schools were shut down as well because of the fact that there still wasn't power. How long were was your family without power where you were located without power like three months but after like those three months we were go- it was going on and on like on and off so so it like, was it wasn't even it, steady power no. I mean you would just have it here and there and still still oh, like really? I, have, I have my family living to our hand they still have their power on and off so you cannot even count on that like you can like per, the life of her Maria is so just you have no idea what is going to happen day by day. And that's why the mental health has been affecting so much. Because you cannot now plan your stuff. Because you don't know if you're going to have power or not. If you're going to have water or not. And every time, it's like, even I'm here. If the power goes off, I'm like, oh my gosh, we're not going to have gas in like a really oh, long time. Oh, it's like time. almost like post-traumatic yeah. stress. So even if we, where you live now, if there's a power outage, you're immediately kind of... Uh, traumatized by it yeah definitely because that's what I think I just come as like oh my god if I stayed too much days without this it's so bad like it's so bad you just used to get your life and your routine and then everything just you're now they're like almost homeless because mm-hmm. yeah you have your house but you don't have anything there mm-hmm. and you just after that just going outside to distract you everyone is going panic so it's just so bad and now they're entering a new hurricane season so i'm sure that friends and family are very concerned back home definitely um that's a good thing about me here but AccuWeather and working i'm not in the island but i do feel good that I'm in serving them. You know, even though I'm not in the island, I feel good that I know for Hispanic communities, we lack like Spanish resources. Okay. That's the thing, that's the other thing. We only depend on local products, but 
yet meteorology is not a very known career in Puerto Rico or there's not a lot of people who does that so we're super lacking of that and awareness and preparedness and right now I'm like doing everything that I can to help my people there here at AccuWeather. So your passion now at this point is really supplying information to those communities back home. Definitely, yeah, that, because Hispanic community lacks on that. And that's a problem. That's a huge problem that we don't have the Spanish resources. Even in schools, we don't get, we don't learn about hurricanes in school, just very little. And now having the impact that that can have, I think we need to get bigger on that. Well, I mean, I guess the, the one bright spot you've created in your life about this is really it has probably changed the course of your life and what you want to do for others as a result of it so uh that's that's pretty remarkable Karuska. um i'm going to be talking to fema in puerto rico a little bit later on and i wondered if you have a question you want me to ask them oh yes i would like to know if there's people living under blue tarps I've seen pictures, like people have sent me pictures, and I've seen those even in San Juan, what is like the main city that has been completely restored and not completely, but that's what it's but surprising. the most restored. The yeah. most of it. Um, so I would, would like to know if they have at least a number because we're just in hurricane season and there's still people living without roof. Well, I thank you so much for spending some time with me, uh, Karuska, and we truly appreciate you telling your story because it provides a constant reminder to us of the importance of our forecasting and the lives of those that depend on it. Thanks, Karuska. Thank you. And continuing our conversation on Hurricane Maria in the aftermath, we are joined by Justo Hernandez. He is the Deputy Federal Coordination Officer for FEMA on the ground in Puerto Rico. Good afternoon. Hi, nice to uh, speak to you on the phone today. I'm so glad you can make some time to talk to us. Well, to us, it's our pleasure. It's our pleasure, especially now that we're getting into preparedness. We need all the opportunities that we have to actually get our folks prepared and ready for this hurricane season that we are at. I'm just curious, Justos, are you from uh, Puerto Rico? Yes, ma'am. I uh, was born and raised in Puerto Rico, and I have been uh, the federal coordinator uh, for 19 years in Puerto Rico, and I'm serving as a deputy federal coordinator for all the events in Puerto Rico for FEMA. Well, you know, I was just talking to, we have a um, AccuWeather uh, meteorologist, uh, one of our broadcasters, she's a Spanish broadcaster, and she was in, her family's from Puerto Rico, and she actually lived there before she came here, so she was there during the storm. And I was even thinking for you, being from Puerto Rico, how difficult this must be for you, the devastation of your own island, uh, and what happened last year, and trying to serve the community there. Uh, my office is in, in Virginia, even though my family, my wife and kids live here, so uh, I made it a point to uh, to ask uh, FEMA to send me back home so that I could get the job done here. And I was the coordinator for Irma in Florida. And so they sent me back here with a national team two days prior to the disaster. So right after the disaster, you know, the conditions in Puerto Rico were really dire. I mean, uh, we had no power. We had no water because the water runs by pumps. Uh, we had 2,600 uh, uh, cell towers, and 70% of, of them were actually in the floor, uh, wow. meaning no communications. Uh, we had over 11,000 survivors in shelters all throughout the island. You know, so as we moved along into the response, we started looking at sending people out to see the damages and to, 
you know, relate the impacts of the event. Almost every hurricane in Puerto Rico that we have seen has always had some area that doesn't get impacted, the west, the southwest uh, part of the island. Uh, but this one impacted everyone. If you had your absolute wish list of what you need when you face a crisis like this going forward, what would it be? Like, have there been any procedural changes of any sort enacted since this emergency? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, we're working right now uh, in accomplishing that task, like creating capacity in Puerto Rico. Uh, all the state plans have been reviewed. Uh, we're ca- qualifying the staff, the response counterparts that we have in the state of Puerto Rico with a national qualification standards uh, for response. We completed a mass casualty exercise, you know, and we're working on many more, including a functional exercise that would actually have me moving uh, commodities to certain municipios here to see how the National Guard, uh, the FEMA distribution center all coupled together. Uh, so that we know that we're ready to to provide some uh, necessary resources. We're providing training for the private sector in terms of COOP. One of the things that really impacted us was as we lost power, we lost the private sector, uh, and it was an an economy based on cash. So we're working right now with the private sector to see about getting them some resiliency, to start thinking about how do they get better, uh, how do they maintain contact with their employees, uh, and what is it, the, the bare necessities they need to open up so that uh, that we can help the economy uh, jumpstart again. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we are we're working. The one thing that I would like uh, to add to that, which is a culture of preparedness. If we can create a culture of people always being ready for events. Right now we're telling people 10 days. Justo, you mean to have that much preparedness, uh, uh, items to survive for 10 days. Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah. We're asking... The people to have a gallon uh, per person for uh, water per day for 10 days. Uh, we're asking them for medicines to keep cash at hand because we went through an, uh, uh, an economy that was cash-based only, uh, to have plans of action, to know where the shelters are that they can run in case they have a problem, to have a communications plan because uh, uh, the one thing that we found also was the fact that uh, there's a lot of people with a family outside the island. Uh, so how are you going to let your loved ones know uh, that you're okay? Uh, we're talking to the, the, the physically challenged, the special needs, you know, the functional and access needs uh, families here uh, to actually uh, have a plan of action. What, what's going to happen with you? Do you have mobility? Do you have your neighbors to know where you're going to be? Uh, if you have pets, what are you doing with them? Uh, do you have enough supplies for to keep them safe uh, with you? Yeah, it definitely sounds as though there have been a lot of procedural changes and where you're changing, trying to get your logistics, where you can get things to where they need to go. And also, I had one other question that um, that our meteorologist here that I interviewed earlier about her experience, she had asked me to ask you if you knew how many people are still living with the tarps as roofs. Do you have any percentage of people who still haven't had... Um, a chance to rebuild um, their roofs, at least? I can tell you right now that uh, the number is really reduced because those tarps don't last more than a month, a month and a half. Uh, and by now, uh, the power in Puerto Rico is 99% restored, which that means that uh, uh, those people have power and the reconstruction with $1.2 billion in assistance has already started. So uh, the people that we gave assistance are, are conducting repairs on their own. Uh, we also have uh, 
uh, a program here that provides up to 20,000 in home repair assistance uh, that is added to the money that we provide is the shelter at home program. Uh, and this program has already 25,182 homes that have been fixed uh, and another 112,000 uh, homes uh, that have signed up for up to 20,000 to build a shelter at the home, which basically means uh, replacing that tarp with a, uh, with a roof uh, that is mitigated with clips so that it will hold uh, and, and building the inside of the house so that the person can complete the repairs with the money that I gave them. Uh, we have also another project here that is uh, one of the m one most important because we have uh, 38 uh, voluntary agencies like Habitat, like AmeriCorps, uh, that we're providing up to $5,000 per home and they're providing the free, uh, free labor. So we have a lot of reconstruction in Puerto Rico and I doubt that we, if we have uh, tarps, uh, if you fly over the island, you're going to see a lot of tarps, but these tarps are not in a in a living areas. They're using them now for carports. They're using them for any other areas within the house that they want to protect. But, okay. but uh, in terms of uh, repairs as it is, uh, we have done a lot uh, to get a lot of assistance out as quickly as we can. A registration period for the monetary award that we give ends in June 18th. So we are really in a massive campaign now to, to tell everyone that hasn't come forward to come forward now. Okay, uh, great. And you had mentioned Habitat for Humanity and AmeriCorps, because I know that there are people here listening to this uh, podcast in the States who probably still want to be able to support your island in some way. Yeah. So it's good to know about those agencies as well. Yeah, we got uh, United Methodist, Catholic Charities. Uh, and right now what we're doing also is uh, trying to bring capacity to the voluntary agencies and the faith-based agencies that we have in Puerto Rico by creating uh, centers or uh, community recovery centers uh, that we will actually do disaster case management. And we actually actively, now we have 63 disaster recovery centers, so we're going to transform them into community recovery centers, uh, and that will bring another influx of uh, uh, voluntary agencies that are going to come in and faith-based agencies with funding to provide for disaster case management, uh, basically assist with a little help, uh, the stuff that I cannot do. Right. Uh, but we're going to actually put our infrastructure so that they can have a place and, and we can refer folks there. Because, you know, the voluntary agencies are here whether we, are, we come or not. And so we acknowledge that. So we want to actually be the conduit by which we can actually bring all the voluntaries in Puerto Rico together to start working together. That's good. You want to be a contact point. Well, I want to let you know that our thoughts and prayers are with your island. And we, uh, you know, just hope for uh, a peaceful 2018 season so you guys can continue to recover. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for your time. And before we get to our next topic, we want to remind you that you can find our AccuWeather podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite podcast. A new episode drops every Thursday. Okay, for this segment, we are talking to our own Jeffrey Cornish. He is a meteorologist here at the AccuWeather Network, but uh, he's also a firefighter, so we thought it would be great to send you out in the midst of these fires in the southwest to keep us up to date on what's going on out there, Jeff. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Regina. It's good to hear from you. So how are things going right now with the uh, fire out there? The crews have made some pretty good progress, although it's still a very large fire and it is not yet uh, fully contained. Uh, the fire started on Thursday, May 31st, so it's been burning for a little while. The first weekend uh, led to pretty explosive fire spread as it jumped pretty rapidly, over 20,000, over 30,000 acres burned. 
but in the past day or two, the fire has not spread rapidly. Basically, the uh, winds have been light enough, generally 20 miles per hour or less, uh, to prevent it from really rapidly spreading. Well, Jeff, has there been any significant damage there reported? 14 buildings lost at the famous Philmont Scout Ranch, which is kind of the national training ground, uh, ground for uh, Boy Scouts and oh. Scout Masters. It's a big destination for Boy Scouts across the country. The good news there is that it's a, they have a huge complex and the heart of, of their facility was not damaged, but they have had a lot of acres burned, and they did lose 14 buildings. Uh, town of Cimarron on the east side, home to 1,100 people, was evacuated over the weekend. They have returned to their homes on Monday, and uh, nothing was lost there. The fire remained to the west of town. Uh, and the bigger threat is in the community of Ute Park. It's a small community in the mountains, and there's an aggressive stand against the fire, not far from the fire line, but uh, I'm getting the impression from the public information officers that they are confident they have a strong presence there and they're able to hold the fire back. Right. Now, uh, Jeff, you know, we're in fire season here in the southwest, and I know that the landscape there, the vegetation, the conditions there all kind of contribute to fires each year. So what role does that play in how these fires come together? Yeah, we really look at uh, a few things, but from uh, the, the true weather standpoint on the day of, uh, we look at uh, the relative humidity, and we look at the wind speed. And those are the two big driving factors uh, that can lead to the fire spread. And when we get the low humidity and a gusty breeze, as we've had early this week, um, these can become pretty unmanageable. So, you know, it's a big uh, demand for a lot of resources to battle a fire of this uh, nature. In, in this case, we have 604 firefighters, seven helicopters, 35 different uh, pieces of fire apparatus, fire engines, and, and tanker trucks, and seven bulldozers, and so forth. It's a setup where, you know, dry air and a gusty breeze can really dry out the vegetation and the pre-existing soil moisture and uh, and the nature of, of rainfall in the months leading up to it can set the table for trouble, especially here in the southwest where things can get very, very dry. Tell me about some uh, differences between battling fires there in the southwest as opposed to maybe a, a fire, like a brush fire that you'd have somewhere in the east. Well, for one thing, brush fire season in the northeast is uh, pretty short. It tends to be March into April in most of the northeast. This year, we were so cold, we had a late start to spring, so it was a little bit delayed into April and maybe even early May. Uh, but it tends to occur at the very end of winter and into the spring before things really green up. Once that comes to life, unless you get a big drought, like we had in, say, 1999, uh, we had a significant August of wildfires in the Northeast. You know, if you don't get into a big drought, wildfires are not nearly as much of a threat in the Northeast once you reach May or June. We have a much longer dry season in the Southwest and across much of the West, really. Uh, so that can, can really prolong uh, the period of time from late spring through the summer. Uh, and uh, as we saw last year in California, you know, it really wasn't until the wet season began uh, and I think it was a late start to the wet season after Thanksgiving when we began to see the wildfires in California become less of an issue. Right. And, you know, uh, they have scrub, like more scrub brush there, right? Like, whereas, you know, like we know that once you get the leaves on the trees, the moisture from the leaves kind of helps with wildfire issues, uh, you know. Yeah, or, and some or of these pine brush. trees go up like torches, too, uh, when they go. And there's kind of a whole backstory. I think it's a pretty fascinating story of the past century of how uh, the Forestry Service has managed uh, wildfires in the western U.S. There was a time for most of the early and middle part of the last century when uh, any fire was perceived as threatening 
they would kind of yeah. quickly want to get that put out, right? Was that yeah, the Yeah, and there was kind of a rule of thumb where, where the Forestry Service wanted every fire out by 10 a.m. the next day. If it wasn't out then, they, their goal was 10 a.m. the following day. You know, as aggressively as they could, they would try to extinguish all fire. Uh, and that's a change from the natural course of, of life in the West. Um, right, because isn't it kind of, of meant to be burned, some of that? is it? Foresters believe that most of the southern Rockies, most of the, the acreage of the southern Rockies would burn about once a decade in the 1800s. And then it was more likely to be caused by, by lightning as opposed to campfires or human-induced right. behavior. But there's something healthy that occurs in the forest when there are fires once every 5 to 10, 15 years. And since uh, the Forestry Service for a long period of time, you know, had an aggressive approach and stance against fire, uh, there are some areas that haven't burned for 50 or 60 years, and that has really allowed the undergrowth to uh, to flourish, and that makes it thicker, and it in some ways kind of loads the barrel of the shotgun when uh, fires do spread because they burn hotter and they're more explosive and uh, the thicker vegetation can allow that fire to spread vertically up into some of the heavy timber as well, as opposed to the cooler burning surface fires from a century ago. Now, more recently, in the second half of the last century, the philosophy changed and there were prescribed burns. And, and now there's kind of a middle of the road approach with, uh, as safely as possible, doing some prescribed burns in certain areas. But there was a time when the public, you know, two generations of the public had had this mentality that all fires were bad and were all threatening. And then uh, the forestry service began to realize there is value in prescribed burns, but they kind of had a marketing problem associated with that at times. Because people don't want to hear that you're going to do any burning. Yeah, yeah. And there are stories and cases where sometimes prescribed burns get out of, out of control. Oh, but, okay. You know, these, these guys do a spectacular job, and um, you know, my comments are not critical of the the Forestry Service in any way. That was, through all of life, we operate with the best science that's available, and that really was it. And we've learned a few things, and they've adjusted their practices. Uh, but even in the Ute Park fire, the northern periphery of the fire line was much easier to contain because there was a significant fire there in 2002. Right, so, so it kept there, it down. Absolutely. And, but the southern flank and the more rugged terrain has not burned for years and years, and that's where they're fighting the bigger uh, challenge. Okay, well, I'm sure this has been very informative to you, especially as a firefighter, because uh, yeah, sure if I mentioned a little bit earlier on that Jeff is a firefighter, so um, you're a good person to have on the ground there. Thanks for taking some time to talk to me today, Jeff. Well, thank you, guys. I enjoyed talking about this stuff. Thanks for listening, and tune in next week. That's when we'll be talking to, uh, well, actually, with this one, Andy, we took some advice from one of our listeners. Yeah. We got a request. Yeah. We got a request. Keep them coming, folks. <laughs> yeah, if you have a topic you want us to uh, dive into, uh, we certainly will. And this is a, a, an interesting topic, especially on the on the subject of hurricanes. Right. So we will be talking to our very own Evan Myers, who will tell us about the deadliest hurricane in American history that decimated Galveston in 1900. Yeah, over, like, close to 8,000 fatalities, I believe that was, right. which is in, insane. It is. It's insane. And so he's going to tell us that story. And we will also get a, an update on the 2018 hurricane season from our very own Dan Kutlowski, our hurricane expert. We'll see you or we'll, you'll hear us then. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Be sure to subscribe to the AccuWeather podcast, giving you the stories behind the weather, discussions on trending weather topics, and so much more. New episodes every Thursday. Just search for AccuWeather on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you find your favorite shows. Thank you. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.